0: Father, we are thankful that your spirit is our strength, our shield, our high tower, the one who carries us through difficult days and joyous days. And Father, we thank you that we can ask you to direct our thinking this morning, to set aside extraneous thoughts and things that would divert us from focusing on who who you are, and pray that you will guide us in our understanding of your word today that our fellowship will truly be in Jesus Christ, our Savior. And Lord, I ask that you will be present in a vital and powerful way uh, throughout our Sunday school this morning, in Jesus' name. Amen. We have spent uh, a great deal of time looking at the book of Exodus. We have quickly moved through the book of Leviticus as sort of the embryonic state of Israel as Israel is uh, coming to the place of understanding what it meant to be the people of God. Moses, as far as we know, wrote Genesis, Exodus, and Leviticus probably at Mount Sinai. Numbers in Deuteronomy, which we'll be looking at now, were probably written at or near the end of Moses' life. That doesn't mean that he didn't write some things down as time passed and the journey was being made, in the wilderness. But certainly by the end of his life, these last two books were penned. In fact, if you go to the, well, let me just read the very last verse of Numbers. It says in Numbers 36, 13, these are the commandments and the ordinances which the Lord commanded to the sons of Israel through Moses in the plains of Moab by the Jordan opposite Jericho. So the the final statements were being made as they were there camped before they began the conquest of the land and shortly before Moses was to be taken by the Lord to heaven. The book of Numbers spans a a period of about 38 years. What is important about it is that it does not do so in the sense of a running chronology. In other words, it doesn't start out with year one you know, or or year two, actually, and go to year three, year four, year five, and and relate all the events. Instead, what you have is a a selective history, a selective narrative. Certain things are described uh, in the course of those 38 years, which God wanted Israel to consider in years and centuries down the line, because they related directly to the covenant. How did Israel deal and survive, live under the covenant? In Exodus and Leviticus, Israel received instructions concerning the covenant. They received the covenant, they were instructed under the covenant, they were given the Decalogue and all the corollary laws to enable them to understand the covenant and to live in accordance with the covenant relationship. In Numbers, we discover how Israel began to actually function under the covenant. How did they really live under the covenant that God had given to them? Uh, Beginning, of course, clear back in the days of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, and then renewed on the top of Mount Sinai with much more enfleshment. We further discover as we study through the book of Numbers that the proclamation of faith is not necessarily equal to faith being lived out. And uh, this is something which uh, Israel, of course, is often lambasted for. But as I've emphasized before, and as I'm certain you you realize, what happened to Israel is sort of the story of our own lives in many ways. Kind of a macrocosm of our own personal microcosm as we study through these people's lives. Numbers serves as a warning. And that warning is that human nature tends towards selfishness. You may have noticed it it tends towards arrogance the things i mean why does scripture keep saying humble yourself under the mighty hand of god because our nature is to exalt ourselves even as satan exalted himself and would be like the almighty he would say and so that's what keeps showing up you know as, as we study through numbers we discover it's through arrogance and greed and and, and the natural tendencies of human nature towards things of the flesh, that there is rebellion in the camp. It's important for us to translate that into our own lives and to realize that uh, we have to work hard to make the profession of our faith a reality. It doesn't come naturally. Uh, You remember the old song, don't you? Folks are dumb where I come from, they ain't had any learning. But they're having a great deal, uh, I forget the exact words there, but uh, doing what, they're having fun doing what comes naturally. Yeah, right, doing what comes naturally. Doing what comes naturally is to walk in violation of the word of God, because what comes naturally to us is of the world, the flesh, and the devil, and is not of God. And therefore, living a life of faith is not an easy thing. It's, It's actually a very, very difficult task. Let me read again a passage we've read before, but I don't know, it, it just keeps cropping up because it seems to focus the Christian life in a nutshell back in 1 Peter chapter 5. In 1 Peter chapter 5, reading uh, beginning at verse 6, starts out with two very, very difficult words and a very difficult concept for us to really apply. Humble yourselves. If there is anything in life that's directly opposite to human nature, it is to humble ourselves. That is not our nature. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, that he may exalt you at the proper time, casting your anxiety upon him because he cares for you. Be of sober spirit, be on the alert. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour but resist him firm in your faith knowing that the same experiences of suffering are being accomplished by, the, by your brethren who are in the world and after you have suffered for a little while in other words suffering is a part of our lives the god of all grace who called you to his eternal glory in Christ will himself perfect confirm strengthen, and establish you. To him be dominion forever and ever. Amen. In Numbers, we discover the God behind this passage. We discover the God who is faithful. The God who is faithful to his promises. God promises and God fulfills those promises. We discover the God who is incredibly merciful. Have you found his incredible mercy? He is amazingly patient. Have you noticed? In all of this, though, we need to remember that he will not compromise. What he has called us to do, he will hold us to do. He is absolutely holy, and he demands holiness from his people. That is not holiness, you know. The pious, passive saint with his hands. You've seen these paintings, right? Saint, he's got his halo around his head there, looking very angelic. That's not what this is talking about at all. The kind of holiness God is talking about is what we read about in 1 Peter. What kind of holiness does God demand? Humbling ourselves. That's an act of holiness. That's an act of separation. I mean, that's what holiness means. It means to be separated. Separated from the world, the flesh, and the devil. And if we humble ourselves, we're doing an act of separation because that's what the world does. And then it says in the the next verse, cast your anxieties upon him. That's a difficult thing to do. Just to take our worries and our fears and give them to God, we're always taking them back to to worry. That's a natural human tendency. And and yet, to be holy is is to give them to Him and to trust Him with them, to know that He cares for us more than we care for ourselves. And and that's true even though it seems like things fall in on us all the time. The next verse, it says, Be of sober spirit beyond the alert. That's not a natural human tendency either. The natural human tendency is to go out, and get drunk, and forget it all. The natural human tendency is is to laugh it all off, as if it's not there. But we're to be sober. It's there. It's real. But in our sobriety, this isn't talking about, you know, alcohol or non-alcohol. It's talking about looking at life seriously. It doesn't mean dragging your chin on the ground like the old Dutch. Uh, uh, did back in, in the days of Calvin. You'll walk around with chin on the ground, everything is terrible, you know, and it's, it's all falling apart. No, not that kind of an attitude at all. It says, be on the alert, knowing that we're in a spiritual warfare, that the enemy is about, and the enemy is about to destroy us. He's about to destroy the church. He's about to destroy the effect of the Word. He doesn't want us to live our faith because that gives foundation, it gives platform for a proclamation of the Word, and he doesn't want that. That's why he delights in tearing down high-profile Christians. Because in so doing, he destroys the effectiveness of the word, he thinks. That's his goal, anyway. And in verse 9, we're told to resist him. That's an act of holiness, too. And that's a decision of our own will. We have to decide that we are going to resist the evil one. We're not going to yield to him. Now, that, of course, requires the strength of God to actually effectively happen. But it needs to be of our mindset to do that. But even when we humble ourselves, we cast our cares upon him, we're sober in spirit, we alert against the evil one, we resist him, it still says in verse 10, after you have suffered for a little while. So to do all those things doesn't mean that you're going to sail through smooth seas with flower petals floating on the surface, you know, and and witnessing all the glorious sunrises and sunsets. No, it means you're going to sail through stormy waters. And that seems to be the the life in which we live today, not just in America, but particularly in America. I mean we, we don't have most of us don't have the difficulties to deal with that many people do overseas, where they're starving to death, or tribal warfare, you don't know what you will go out and somebody will cut your head off with a machete, you know. We don't necessarily have all of that constantly threatening us, but instead the enemy works at us in a different way. He tears our homes apart. He tears our families apart. He tears our churches apart. Uh, He attacks us physically. All these kinds of things will happen. And his his goal, of course, is to destroy the church. Uh, God has promised that the church will survive, uh, that the church will be ultimately triumphant, But along the way there are going to be a lot of wounded. It says right there, and after you have suffered for a little while, the God of all grace who called you to his eternal glory in Christ will himself perfect Confirm, strengthen, and establish you, me, His people, and that's what He's trying to do to Israel. That—that's His work here. Uh, the, the proclamation of of the law, the Decalogue, was simply a, a statement of what it means to be human in God, in God, in a godly sense. God is not, as we have so often heard, this great cosmic killjoy who looks down and says, hmm, they, they'd have fun doing that? Then I'm going to say, no, don't do it. No. That, that isn't the way God looks at it at all. God knows you. God knows me. You ought to. He made us. And he knows what will make us better. Not just better in, 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 a, in the sense of more holy, but better in the sense that we will have greater joy in life. God is more interested in deep contentment and long-term joy than he is for a little shivery thrill at the moment, you know, because that shivery thrill is gone, and often in its place is emptiness and despair and pain. God wants us to have joy, and that's why he gave us the Decalogue. He wants us to have peace. That's why he gave us all the corollary laws that, uh, that range out from the Decalogue. And, and directed Israel so that they will know how to live, even to the, to the point of, how do you live in a marriage relationship? How do you deal with your children? How do you deal with, a, with your, your boss, even, you know, so to speak? All of these things are included. God did that so that they would have peace and joy and confidence in the lives that they would live in God. But God also, of course, had to deal with the negative side. If his people persisted in disobedience, if they persisted in faithlessness, God would bring discipline upon them. God would bring judgment upon them. Now, we know how serious this was. How seriously did God discipline and judge his people from time to time? Very seriously even to the point of taking life at times. Remember what happened to Nadab and Abihu, who dared to disobey God and, and to offer incense that God had not commanded them to offer to us. That might look like a pretty minor thing, you know. But it was a major thing because it was a direct act of disobedience by those who were high-profile people. People who, who would, one of whom would have next inherited the high priesthood. And, and therefore, what they did was, was so important In the eyes of the people. And so God dealt with them in a very, very strict and serious manner. And he took their lives. God takes no delight in such discipline. His greatest desire is to bless his people. Can we we always remember that? God's greatest desire is to bless us. It's what he wants to do above everything else. He takes his greatest pleasure in delivering the people who trust in him. Now, what that deliverance means is, of course, in his mind and in his heart, and we take it by faith. That deliverance can come in many forms, as I trust we well know. In 2 Thessalonians 3.3, 3, we read, The Lord is faithful, and he will strengthen and protect you from the evil one. The Lord is faithful. He will strengthen and protect you from the evil one. I'd like to read a passage from Isaiah, chapter 61. It's a passage you know well because it's the passage that Jesus quoted when he was in the synagogue at Nazareth, and they handed him the scripture, and this is the passage he read, or at least he read a portion of this passage. Isaiah 61, beginning at verse 1. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, Because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the afflicted. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to captives, freedom to prisoners, to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord, and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn, to grant to those who mourn in Zion, giving them a garland instead of ashes, the oil of gladness, instead of mourning the mantle of praise instead of a spirit of fainting so they will be called oaks of righteousness the planting of the Lord that he may be glorified now that, that that was the word Jesus proclaimed to the to the people in the in the synagogue there at Nazareth and of course they rose up and took him outside and would have stoned him because they understood that this was what messiah was to do And he was therefore proclaiming himself to be Messiah. But that's what Jesus came to do. And not just as he walked for 30 some odd years here on this earth, but eternally, that's what he came to do. That's what he is here to do now. That's what he's in our midst to do. He's here to bring good news to the afflicted. He's here to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to captives. He's here to comfort all who mourn, giving the garland instead of ashes. Now, we may not always see this in the sense of, oh, you know, some great wonderful thing falls in upon someone who was having a real difficult time. That may happen, but it isn't necessarily what happens. But in the long run, it's always what happens because one day we'll all stand before the Lord And he will give to us gifts beyond our comprehension as we stand and face eternity. Our lives in this earth may have been one year, five years, ten years, a hundred years. But it's like that as we view eternity. We always have to view everything from the standpoint of eternity. Otherwise, we get very discouraged. Is this all life's about, you know, aches and pains and sorrows and tragedies? Well, no. It's about making for God a people who will reflect the image of Christ in a world of pain and sorrow. And that's what Israel was to do. Israel was God's chosen people. He called them out of darkness into his marvelous light, that they might be a kingdom of priests unto the whole world. They were not real good at it, and they weren't always obedient, and neither are we. The church is not perfect. Israel was not perfect. But the God of Israel was perfect, and the God of the church is perfect. And he is the one we have to turn our eyes to. So as we look at the book of Numbers, I trust we will see Emmanuel, God with his people. We will see the eminence of God, the presence of God with his people as they move from camp to camp, and as they stood there at the edge of Canaan they sent the 12 spies in and the 12 spies came back with all these goodies and yet 10 of them were pessimistic two of them were o- optimistic and Israel decided to go with the pessimists i mean most of us do right uh, most of us listen to the pessimist before we listen to the optimist because we think the optimist has got you know birds in his brain or something you know and the pessimist is, has got a real view of things you know <laughs> When in reality, of course, God is the greatest optimist of all. Of course, he knows the end from the beginning. He knows the end of the, he knows the, ends of the story. But we do too. You know, read Revelation in case you haven't thought of the end chapter too much lately. But, but through the book of Numbers, you, you see how that God was present with his people in the midst of it all. And Moses, of course, bore the burden. Moses was the burden bearer of his people. And he stood there between God and his people, constantly interceding on their behalf. And sometimes, I'm sure, he was ready to pull his hair out. He was ready to shoot the nearest Israelite, you know, if he could get his hands on one, Uh, whatever. But he was faithful to the end. The Hebrews called this book, In the Wilderness, which, of course, is very descriptive of the contents of the book. But about a little over 2,000 years ago, when the Septuagint translators translated the Hebrew into Greek for the first time, uh, they were impressed by the two censuses which are taken in this book, so they decided to call it Numbers. Isn't that an exciting title? Numbers. <laughs> it's like picking up a book that says alphabet on it. Oh, I, can't, I can't wait to read this book, you know. <laughs> in the Wilderness sounds more, you know, sounds real spiritual, really, when you think about it. The first four chapters of the book of Numbers deal with the first census that was taken. God had commanded Moses to take a census of the people. Now they're at Mount Sinai. And so let's read the first four verses. Then the Lord spoke to Moses in the wilderness of Sinai, in the tent of meeting, on the first of the second month, in the second year, after they had come out of the land of Egypt, saying, Take a census of all the congregation of the sons of Israel, by their families, by their father's households, according to the number of names, every male, head by head, from 20 years old and upward, whoever is able to go out to war in Israel, you and Aaron shall number them by their armies. And with you moreover, there shall be a man of each tribe, each one head of his father's household. And then it goes on to name Uh, the principal person who would be representative of each of the tribes that were to be numbered. All of the tribes are listed there except Levi. Uh, Levi will be numbered differently, as we'll see uh, a little bit further along in the book of Numbers. The census was to be, of all of the males, 20 years of age and upward, older. Why 20 years of age? Because that was not only, as it says in the passage, old enough to go out to war. I mean, how old do you have to be to go out to war? I mean, we conscript men at 18 even. Uh, And men of 17 and 16 have somehow snuck in from time to time. But the, the real focus here has got to be upon the fact that these are those old enough to pay the tabernacle tax. These are those old enough that they must appear before God on the three celebrations that were given each year where they were called, all the men were called to appear before God. We're given in this, um, these first four chapters of Numbers the total. The total is given as 603,550 men. Twenty years old and upward amongst the, the tribes, less Levi, 603,550 men. We're told that Judah had 74,600. Well, if you figure this out, you quickly discover that that was the largest tribe, that Judah alone possessed 12% of the entire population, although it was only one twelfth, or one thirteenth actually, uh, of the whole population. It had 12%, which is about one-eighth of the uh, population, which was 50% higher than the average for the tribes, which was 50,000 per tribe. Why? Well, God had prophesied through Jacob, and, and you could go back to the 49th chapter of Genesis if you want to, to read this, that the tribe of Judah would one day be the dominant tribe. It would be the ruling tribe. Hundreds of years later, Judah would eventually come to include one quarter of all of Israel. One quarter of all Israel would be men of Judah. That would leave only three-quarters for the other 11 tribes of Israel. We know that David came from Judah. We know that Messiah came from the tribe of Judah. What is also interesting is that today, the vast majority of the descendants of Abraham are called Jews. In fact, they're all called Jews. Where's the word Jew come from? It's an old English word that comes from the Old French, which comes from the Ro- Latin, which comes from the Greek, which comes from the Aramaic, and it means Yehuda, Judah. So the word Jew means one from Judah. Of course, we know if, we, if you study... Uh, the books of Kings and Chronicles, you know that there was a point in time when the northern kingdom had been destroyed, the ten tribes of the north had been destroyed and many had been carried off into captivity, that many from those had fled into Judah so that there were living in Judah representatives from all the tribes. That's how it can be if we literally interpret the book of Revelation that in the end times there will be 12,000 from each of the tribes. of How can that be? It can be because there were migrants into Judah of the other tribes. And I believe amongst the Jews who live today, there are those who are blood descendants of Ephraim and Manasseh and Reuben and Gad and Benjamin, all those. And and it will be up to God, of course, to to distinguish them so that they will know who's what. Now, we know there are some from Levi today. Anybody with the name Cohen is from the tribe of Levi because that means priest and nobody was a priest except those of the tribe of Levi. That's why, to me, it's so, <laughs> it's so ironic that one of the greatest hoodlums of uh, about a generation past was Mickey Cohen. <laughs> Gangster par excellence, you know, and yet, who was he? Cohen, oh man, the tribe of Levi. This census is the basis for our understanding of how many people were in this wilderness wandering. Stop and think about it for a minute. Now, if, uh, I, I, we can't necessarily directly take Israel of 3,500 years ago and compare it to all the peoples of today. But if you go to most countries in the world today, except the most advanced countries that are going downhill, like the Western countries but go to the young, vibrant nations, which Israel was a young, vibrant nation, you'll discover that half the population in most third world countries is under 15 years of age. So let's just stretch that a little bit and make 20 the dividing point between half. Half are under 20, half are older older than 20. So if you have 603,550 from 20 to 120, Moses would die at 120, Uh, then you probably have an equal number from 0 to 20. And that's males. So you double that. And then you figure there's as many females as there are males probably, so you double that. And what you end up with is 2 and a quarter million as the total population. Now, there are those who really have trouble with that. They say, how in the world could Moses lead 2 and a quarter million people through the wilderness? How in the world could they survive in the wilderness? The answer is (laughs) G-O-D. And if we don't understand that, then I don't care what number you give. I mean, did Moses have 603 followers? After 400 years in Egypt, 70 people can only multiply to 603? I'm sorry, but there's a real problem with that. It has been adequately demonstrated that in 400 years, 670 people could easily multiply to 2 to 3 million people without any problem, giving normal birth rates and normal death rates. And you'd be surprised how even under oppression, people (laughs) survive and multiply. And God's blessing was on Israel. So I don't think there was any problem with having that number. And getting it through the wilderness was God's problem, not Moses' problem. And how do you feed them anyway? with manna out of heaven. So they didn't have to live off crops in the desert. God gave them manna from heaven. And is it more difficult for God to feed 2 million as to feed 2,000? I don't really think so. So, you know, these numbers don't bother me, uh, even though there are those who argue uh, against them. But they usually do from a purely human point of view. But as you start reading the divisions here and, and how these numbers are divided up, it just doesn't make any sense if you try to trim it all the way down to just a few dozen people. I mean, how would a few dozen people cause the people of Canaan to be scared to death? You know, oh wow, we're going to be attacked by 120 men today. <laughs> you know. The Levites were numbered separately because they had a special role to play. The Levite males from one month old and upward were numbered. Not twenty years, one month. And these were given to God in place of the firstborn male in every family in Israel. Because that was what was demanded by God when the Passover was established. When God slew the firstborn of all of the Egyptians, all those who didn't put the blood over the doorposts of their house, God said that I will uh, expect that the firstborn in the house now will be dedicated to me. But that's real impractical because the firstborn in every household is the heir. (laughs) He is the one who's supposed to be the patriarch of the family, ultimately. He's supposed to inherit the property and all the rest of it. So this this could really create a lot of confusion, a lot of problems. So what God said was, I will take Levi instead. Now, if you'll turn to the third chapter of Numbers, I I think there's a misprint in your outline. It says, Leviticus, Uh, it's Numbers. Numbers chapter 3, verse 11. Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Now behold, I have taken the Levites from among the sons of Israel instead of every firstborn, the first issue of the womb among the sons of Israel. So the Levites will be mine. For all the firstborn are mine. On the day that I struck down all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, I sanctified to myself all the firstborn in Israel from man to beast they shall be mine i am yahweh so what god has done is replaced all the confusion of trying to extra- extract the firstborn from all over the countryside and bring them there and train them up in the way they should go instead he created a whole tribe that that would be their job and that's what they would expect And they won't feel denied. Oh, I didn't get the inheritance of my father. I didn't get to have that great estate out there because I had to come and serve the tabernacle. No, the young in in Levi, that was what they were to do. They had no other expectation but to serve God in the tabernacle. Verse 39 of the same third chapter. All the numbered men of the Levites whom Moses and Aaron numbered at the command of the Lord by their families Every male from a month old and upward were twenty-two thousand. Then the Lord said to Moses, Number every firstborn male of the sons of Israel from one month old and upward, and make a list of their names. And you shall take the Levites from me, for I am the Lord, instead of all the firstborn among the sons of Israel, and the cattle of the Levites instead of all the firstborn among the cattle of the sons of Israel. So Moses numbered all the firstborn among the sons of Israel, just as the Lord had commanded him, and all the firstborn males by the number of names from one month old and upward were, for their numbered men were 22,273. And it goes on to say that for the 273 in excess, there was a ransom that was to be paid. Now, how's that? The number of Levites from firstborn uh, from one month old and upward was 22,000. The number of firstborn in all of Israel rounds off to 22,000. How coincidental. It is interesting to note that the tribe of Levi is by far the smallest tribe. Far smaller than any other tribe. There were only 22,000 males from one month old to however far up, you know. If they were to be numbered as the other tribes had been numbered from the age 20 and up, what would their number have been? Half that, probably. 11,000, maybe 12,000. I mean, compared to Judah with nearly 75,000, And the average for the tribes at 50,000? It would have been a rinky-dink tribe uh, in terms of numbers. Why was this so? Was it because Levi was somehow afflicted with some, uh, you know, congenital disease by which he couldn't have very many kids? I mean, it's God. God keeps coming down and doing things according to his great plan. He saw to it, by whatever means he so chose, to bring Levi to that number, that these two numbers would be basically identical. On purpose, God did this. Now, a lot of people have trouble with that. Particular secular scholars who read the Bible, or liberal scholars who read the Bible, who want to be able to find a human answer to everything. Well, as soon as we start trying to define God in human terms, God ceases to be God. God had a special role for the Levites to play. Now, Levi had three sons. Those three sons were Gershon, Kohath, and Merari. Write that down in your little book so that you can advise your kids. Hey, got a son? Good, good choices here. Gershon, Kohath, Merari. Well, actually, I, I knew a young man back when I was in school whose name was Kohath. It was a little different name for that time, for any time, I guess. But he had that name. These three clans became the groups by which God would divide up the service of the tabernacle. He divided up the service clan-wise. And you know what? Even even though we're not given all these details, I I believe probably each clan had about the right number of people to do the job. They didn't have to filch from each other to, to fill in the manpower to do the job they were given to do. We're told in the Scripture that every physically able levite from the age of 30 to the age of 50 was to participate in certain specific duties number 1 if they were the clan of gershon they were responsible for all of the cloth hangings and all of the cloth coverings they were responsible for the three great la- four great layers that were thrown over the tabernacle they were responsible for all the cloth wall Surrounded the tabernacle precinct. They were responsible for folding it and transporting it and resetting it back up on the posts and, and on the tabernacle frame. Secondly, the clan of Kohath was to carry and set up all the furnishings and implements of the tabernacle and the courtyard. They would carry the ark, they would carry the menorah, they would carry the bronze altar and the golden altar of incense they would carry all those kinds of implements and furnishings. It was a very, very responsible job. And then last, the clan of Merari had the duty of carrying and setting up all the foundations, the frameworks, and the posts of the tabernacle and the tent wall. I I mean, the courtyard wall. So obviously, their task of taking things down came last, and their task of setting things up came first. You have to put foundation down, put the posts up, put the framework up, before you can hang the cloths and and put the coverings on, and then before you can put all the implements in. And so, basically, that was the order in which it was done. Now, there were more than enough men to carry out these duties. I mean, how many people does it really take to take down the tabernacle, remembering that it wasn't really a very large building? So... The scripture says they were not allowed to begin their duties until they were 30 years of age. Why? Well, partly, I suppose, to, to pick a person who had achieved maturity, a, piece, a person who was more likely to be serious and conscientious about his task. And then they were only to do this until they were 50. Why? Well, again, to keep the number directly involved to the core to the the age of the prime of life, I guess you could say, and after fifty, certainly menim would be plenty strong to do the whole thing. But hey, there would be those who might not be physically able, and so they retired from that particular for, uh, portion of the duty at age fifty. But they didn't just retire. Now it's um, interesting. Let, let's look at chapter four of Numbers, verse forty-six. Numbers four forty-six. All the numbered men of the Levites, whom Moses and Aaron and the leaders of Israel numbered, by their families and by their fathers' households, from 30 years old and upwards even to 50 years old, everyone who could enter to do the work of service and the work of carrying in the tent of meeting, their numbered men were 8,580. According to the commandment of the Lord through Moses, these were numbered, everyone by his serving or carrying, and thus these were his numbered men, just as the Lord had commanded Moses." Now, understanding the mind of God and understanding the the direction of Moses in this, you can believe this was not a haphazard thing. God did not, I mean, Moses didn't just turn loose 8,580 men and say, go out there now and tear this thing down, we're going to move, and now set it back up. Every man was assigned to a specific Duty. This is your post. <laughs> you undo the curtain on post number 73. And this is your post. You're responsible for this post. You're responsible for this curtain. Every man had a specific thing to do. And with it happening that way, you could understand how this thing could go down like that and up like that and would be transported, you know, well, uh, wherever it was to go. No chaos, no confusion, absolute precision in how this was to be done. But that wasn't all they were to do. Tearing down the tabernacle, transporting it, and setting it up again with the precinct around it was not all they were to do. They were also responsible for maintenance of the tabernacle and the precinct. For whatever reason, and it's very interesting about this, um, we're we're told later in the 8th chapter, that you could begin this part of the duty at age 25. So at age 25, you could help maintain things, but you had to be 30 before you could actually have an assigned post for the tearing down, carrying and resetting up of the uh, tabernacle. And then once you were past the age 50, you were still part of the maintenance crew, but you were no longer part of the tear down, carry, setup crew. That's the way God organized it. I mean, it was organized down to the proverbial gnat's eyelash here as we see it. The fifth chapter of the book of Numbers is a bit of a difficult chapter. It deals with the question of purity in Israel. And that, that's not the difficult part, of course, because God wanted it to be known that spiritual purity was of greatest importance. And all of this focuses in that direction. And so all of life was to be set up with that being the ultimate goal. So the heart of the fifth chapter deals with something that that many commentators have had a lot of trouble with, particularly those who don't really understand the imminence of God in all of this, because in that heart of that fifth chapter is is a passage which talks about women, a woman who becomes involved in adultery and it's all done in secret And her husband doesn't know about it, but begins to have suspicions that his wife is not faithful to him and that how he deals with that. Because as God viewed marriage, unfaithfulness in marriage is unfaithfulness to God. There was a direct equation there. There is a direct equation in scripture in God's mind. Not only because marriage is used as an image, as a portrait of Christ and the church, but because it deals with the depth of human fidelity. And, and if we can't be faithful within a, a, a physical relationship like this, then our faithfulness to God is extremely questionable. And in God's, uh, in God's view, uh, it doesn't exist. And so God deals with this in a very, very serious way. And many as they read this, because it says that with, if a husband suspects his wife, uh, he is supposed to go to the priest and take her to the priest. And uh, there in the tabernacle, courtyard, she is to be kind of tried. Only it's, it, it almost sounds like a trial by ordeal, whereas a glass of water is given to her. It's called holy water, and, and some holy dirt's mixed into it, and she's supposed to drink it. And if she's guilty, uh, it, well, the Scripture says her thigh will rot away and her, her stomach will swell. And, and it really sounds like hocus-pocus, you know, as, as you read it that way. But what we have to understand is this is not hocus-pocus. There is absolutely no magic here at all. This is the eminence of God. If a man suspects his wife, he's going to be pretty sure that he is not just expressing his own, his own capriciousness or his own jealous nature by accusing her, because if all this works out and she's proven to be clean and not unfaithful, he's going to look like a, a fool, is what he's going to look like. And, and so it's, it's a very serious matter. And, and for the woman, she is absolutely secure if she has been faithful. There, there's no trial by ordeal. You know, remember the old trial by ordeal? It used to happen in the medieval world. Throw you into the water, and if you drowned, you were innocent. And you floated, you were guilty, so they killed you. Great. You know, great way of dealing with <laughs> dealing with it. You know. Now, because if if you drowned, it's because the water accepted you because you were truthful. You know, but water rejected you, so you floated. You know, if you were a liar. Well, or, ordeal is not a good thing, and God didn't use that. We have to understand God is in this, and and when the priest gives the water, I mean, the water was water, and the dirt from the floor was dirt from the floor. It was holy in the sense that it was God's precinct, And, and the priest gave it to her, and she drank this water, and it was the curse of the priest, the oath that she took, because she says, amen, amen, so be it, according to his words there, and, you know, it was God. And, and really, when it talks about the leg, the the, the, thwa, the thigh uh, withering and the abdomen swelling, those are terms meaning barrenness or referring to the concept of barrenness. If she were guilty, she would thereby be barren from that moment on. If she were not guilty, she would bear children. Yet again, if the child, if she was bearing a child from infidelity, it would miscarry. This is the the latent meaning in all of this. And it's God's way of purifying people. Because how do, if if someone's, it's like the O.J. Simpson trial. O.J. absolutely denies guilt. There is all this evidence. Who knows the truth? God knows the truth. And so if someone stands before God, God will judge. And God will bring out the truth so that Israel will have purity in its midst and be able to live in accordance with His will. There's no hocus pocus here. It's the, it's the work of the sovereign God to bring truth to the forefront where it cannot necessarily be known if people stand adamant in their rejection of admitting truth if they're lying. So anyway, that's my understanding of the fifth chapter. And to me, it makes a great deal of sense within the context of all that took place in Israel. Well, I think we'll stop at that point and we'll pick up with the sixth chapter next week because it deals with a very, very interesting oath called the vow of the Nazarite. And if you remember, Samson is probably one of the most outstanding persons later on to take this or to have this vow imposed upon him. And it seems also to have been the vow of John the Baptist. So we'll look at that next week.